Are you ready to take action to attain the lifestyle of your dreams? It's a great way to make a lot of money fast, fast, fast. Hey, welcome back to the Clever Investor Show. I am your lucky host, the original Clever Investor, Cody Sperber. And today I got one of my favorite people in the real estate game. Somebody I would consider a mentor, especially in the multifamily space. You and Vina Jetty are my multifamily mentors, my favorite people in the multifamily space. We got the amazing Jerome Maldonado here with us today. Been in the real estate game for over 25 years. Own multiple six, seven, eight, maybe even some nine-figure business. I mean, dude, like you're playing the game at a very high level. Your, your concrete business, you've been doing that how long? 28 years. 28 years, killing it in the concrete business out of New Mexico, right? Correct. Killing it in the concrete business. You were telling me your concrete business makes so much money that you can't let it go, even though you're murdering it in the multifamily space. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have you on here today because uh, what was it? How many years ago did you start in multifamily? I started in 2009 indirectly, um, but I really got into it, immersed in it in 2016. Okay. So you're all, you start, you're educating yourself. You decide, hey, I'm in construction. I'm going to go all in on this multifamily thing as a side hustle business. How many projects do you have right now? Uh, we always have. Like in total, like how many units are completed? How many units are in production? So we, we have over a thousand units completed and under management. And right now we have just under 600 units under construction or getting ready to come out of the ground. I love this, dude. This conversation is going to be great. If you are into, because the point of this show is making an embarrassing amount of money, keeping more of the money you make through understanding tax benefits and how the tax structure works, um, multiplying your money, right? Like making it really Compounding grow it. and then making your money matter. And you're going to, we're going to talk about all those things on today's show because not only do you have successful businesses that are earning you a ton of earned income, you're playing the investing game really smartly because you're a professional builder. You've built some amazing houses, luxury houses, regular houses, neighborhoods, condos, like the whole, you ran the gamut of all of that. So I want to unpack some of that, but now you're building multifamily from the ground up and, or taking distressed multifamily projects, pretty much just ripping them apart and then putting them back together, even adding more units to the parcels, figuring out how to maximize the space. And like you said, you have almost 1600 units will be completed here within the next, the next few years. years. Yeah. And man, when I think about getting into the multifamily game as a developer, as a builder, this is why I consider you one of my mentors is because you're building a really smart product at the right moment in time. Like you're not building these insanely overbuilt, overdeveloped luxury type apartments. You're building affordable housing. Correct. And you're doing it at scale. So first off, welcome to the show, man. I'm excited Bro. you're here. I'm excited to be here and I appreciate you, man. Um, as glamorous as all that sounds, I'm just a dude, man, from the streets and just like everybody else, I just, I found an industry um, I was lucky enough to take advantage of. And so um, I feel blessed to be here. I feel um, blessed that I, I, I recognized it and I really didn't recognize it, man. You know that I was ungrateful in this industry for a large number of years. I wanted out. Really? Yeah, man. I, I just, this was, it was, I felt like it was a hard industry. I, um, I was, I would look around at my buddies who owned like investment companies or other stuff that seems so much easier than being in the dirt. 
And they, I just felt like they were just getting paid so massively. And some of them were making way more money than me for a long time. And I just didn't know how to get into their space. And I just kept doing what I was doing. And now I feel like I'm the last man standing because those guys, some of them went out of business. Some of them have been hit by the SEC. Some of them have been hit by the um, CFPB. Um, they've just had variables and we're still here. So I feel blessed in that way. The grass it, isn't always greener on the oh, other side bro, is what no, you're saying. Yeah. Not by, by, by far. And, um, you know, sometimes what, you know, that song by Garth Brooks just says some, some of the God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Oh yeah. Man, I prayed to get out of this industry because it was so, I felt like it was so hard in early years because I was in the trenches doing it mm-hmm. and I just found better ways to do it. And I'm, I feel so grateful that I never got out of it. Because now that I've actually figured out how the game works, it's been such a blessing. So much so that I want my kids to embrace it. And, I, and sometimes our kids don't listen to us. And I just think that, that this is the vehicle. Like if they really like have a light over them, this is a vehicle that can last exponentially for them, you know? So I feel blessed in that regards. Well, you've made some serious headway since 2016. When you think about it, to even... uh complete and get a thousand project uh, uh, doors under management in yeah. just a few short years, plus another 600 in development. And you're here in town because we're about to go out and look at three different projects together. Yep. Um, one in Apache Junction, one in Mesa, Arizona, and one in Chandler, where we're going to build from the ground up. And you're going to be our partner in the deal if we pull it p- p- when, when, when. When, not when, not if. Not when, if. When, when. When we pull this off. Um, because whenever you do your first project, and I didn't understand this in the beginning because I was thinking, how am I going to get into this space? I'm a single family house guy. I've bought apartments yep. at auction. I bought apartments from other wholesalers. I flipped apartments. I own uh, or am a partner in a part owner in a couple bigger apartment deals right now. Um, but just starting since last year, when I really started moving into multifamily, getting mentored by you and Vina and, and my, my multifamily friends, um, I didn't realize I, I have to have a sponsor. I have to have a partner that's more experienced in the beginning to get me in the game. Yeah. So you're my sponsor, dude. Well, we're, we're going to- I need you. We're going to do it. And and you know what's funny? You don't even know what you need in the beginning. And I, we were talking about how there's multiple businesses within this business. Um, I was naive getting into this. Um, when yeah, I, let's talk about it. Unpack yeah. you, your first few years getting in. What was your first projects like? How did you build your power team? Yeah. How did you approach it versus now maybe? Like, how are you looking at things? You know, I remember in 2009, sitting over in Ganey Ranch- at um, it, um, at the the resort over in Scottsdale, Ganey Ranch. I was sitting there at the bar, talking to a gentleman that was in storage, in self storage. I all I could think of, I was in retail at the time, and all I could think about as I sat there was how I was going to make the payments on all these p- properties for an, an extended amount of months if I couldn't make enough capital. Two thousand nine. This two thousand. So the market we were, is just crap. Oh yeah, I was building retail yeah. centers at the time. And so I was doing residential single family um, subdivisions. What saved me was I was building those out cash. And so there was a benefit to that, but also there's some cut, there's some shortcomings to that too. The, the shortcomings are you can't scale. If, you can only scale to a certain degree if you do things cash. The positive to that was I was debt-free. Yeah, you didn't get so hammered I didn't get hammered. foreclosures. But I was in retail. I was doing retail development. And our retail development was like 25,000 to 40,000 square foot, small little strip centers. 
And I had multiple of these under construction and the banks contracted. And when they contracted, they were bullying us to, uh, to make payments. It didn't matter if you were late. Didn't matter if it didn't matter if you were paid in full, didn't have any late payments, didn't, and never defaulted on, on any of your payments. They were underwriting you annually, um, as if you were a brand new client and they were making uh, me pay for the, for the underwriting and they were doing forced appraisals on us annually. Cause there's a little clause mm. in there that in the, in the underwriting that says, any costs associated with servicing this loan, you as the borrower were responsible for. So not only am I trying to make these payments, but now I'm getting pinged for $20,000 appraisals for another $10,000 for underwriting. Dude, and no way would anybody, unless you're like an attorney type minded person, would read that little phrase in the contract buried somewhere in there and understand exactly what that really meant to yeah. you a year later when the market's falling apart and they're now reappraising you, reassessing, oh, constantly up your butt. And now you're like, really? How am I supposed to survive with you pinging me with all these oh, they're, fees? they're hammering you. And then, so you do it the first year, right? So 2009 happens. You do it the first year. You're like, okay, this is bullshit, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. Then a year goes by, you get a phone call. You see it coming on your phone. You're like, okay, what are these, what do these fuckers want now? Yeah. Right? So you answer it. Same thing. How do you feel? Oh, I'm pissed. pissed. Yeah. Pissed. So we're fighting with each other on the phone and, uh, and you're pissed because we're sitting there going, okay, we got to service this. We're already struggling. We're, we're not missing payments. We're not late on these. I'm working my ass off to stay up on everything. You're trying to lease these Yeah, properties. I'm one of the good guys. I'm, yeah. I'm actually- up to date yeah, on my so payments. We, and we were, we never defaulted, never were late, nothing. We made sure of it. And I'm out there flying across the country trying to make deals work. And I'm buying here in Phoenix. And so I'm buying garbage, class D garbage. So I don't know if you remember off the 202 between 40th and 44th street, the, where the Marriott is right there, the Chinese cultural center, oh, there yeah. was a bunch of shitty fourplexes there. It took me two years to acquire all of those with the exception of a couple fourplexes, but I had, I acquired 64 units of fourplexes right there. And this is like class D stuff. This is at a time in, in Phoenix where there was a lot of political ploy against um, um, immigrants moving in. And, um, and if they didn't have residency, you couldn't lease to them. And if you got caught leasing to them, you had, a, uh, you were charged $2,500 per occurrence. So guess who I leased to? All immigrants. I didn't care about that. I said, let them catch me. I mean, they need a place. What's discrimination? So those guys became workers. I found them over at the Home Depot on Thomas and, uh, and 30, uh, was it 36th street there and in the parking lot. In a time when nobody would hire them, nobody would lease to them because landlords were afraid to get pinged. I was already in such a, a state that I didn't care. I was like, you know what? This is all, all in or die, right? So I started hiring these guys and I created my own little inner, inner alliance of contractors. Dude, I love this story. Yeah, so you bucked the system. You did the right thing. Yeah, because that was the right your, thing. You built your network around it. Yep. They probably were good, hardworking, cash paying. Dude, cash paying. Renters. They, and they friggin loved, loved me. Yes. And and they so much That's some so, shit I would do, Jerome. I love yeah. that story. So, bro, what happened was I wasn't even planning on buying single family homes. But we landed up finding like these, they, they had single family homes here in Phoenix. You know, you live, were living out here, bro. We were buying single family homes, sight unseen for like 28,000 bucks, you know, three bedroom mm -hmm. houses, 1,800 to 2,000 square foot houses. We were leasing these things for anywhere between 900 and 1,100 bucks a month. And we were just going in and writing checks for them. Yep. And, um, and it was money that I didn't have, but I had to have, right? Like you have to, like, like you have to find the capital to buy that type of stuff when it's available. We didn't have the money because we were trying to service debt, but we had to make the money and figure out how to buy it. So I, I landed up 
buying one, renovating it to a T, thinking that's what I needed to do. And then these guys, I'd, I'd go in and I would lease it to the guys who were doing work for us. And then they go, I have a primo that needs another place. And so I go, okay. And they're like, can you find me one? I say, yeah, but we, it's going to take us two, three months to renovate. They go, no, no. Stavian, it's good, they tell me. Yeah. And so, so I go, no way, that thing's like trashed. These guys would work in there. They would renovate it. I give them free rent for uh, part of the time. They renovated them for me. I, I just, and they go, do you have another one? Do you have another one? Do you have another one? So I built a portfolio based on the referrals of these guys that just needed places to live. Yeah. Here's what's crazy. So me and I, I was down at the foreclosure auction buying a ton of that stuff. I yeah. love that stuff. And um, <clears throat> one of the things my mentor Lyle taught me is that um, those type of renters, those cash buying type of, or cash renters, yep. especially in the Hispanic community, once they like you and they trust you, yep. they never want to get off the ride. No. And what my mentor would do is he would do all the things you just described. And about once a year, every 18 months, he'd show back up, build, eat food with them, build you know more rapport yeah. with them and say, hey, you need a new pickup truck? Do you need new credit card? What do you need right now? And they'll go, oh yeah, my truck, I guess it's a little old. And he'll go, hey, I'll buy you a new truck. We'll just, and he was, his expertise was seller financing these deals to this community. Yeah. And then constantly taking care of whatever financial needs they had by keeping the loan balance up. So they yep. would pay it down and he would refi their truck back into it, a new truck and boom. And he would just keep injecting capital and, and had a cash it, flow. And he had cash flow. He kept having interest. Um, and they would pay, you know, seven, eight, nine percent, no problem. Yeah. As long as because no one's gonna offer them credit. Most yeah. of them don't have residency. It just they need might to have be a work easy. visa. Yeah, it has to be simple. Yeah. And they don't mind making the payments to you. And so, and then there's companies out there that once you have these these um, owner finance contracts set in place, they'll buy them from you. Yep. And so we sold our whole portfolio off to that. To, to um, an individual that had a, a company that bought that type of asset class. Now, the fourplexes were a little bit different. We sold that off to an investment group, a development group, similar to what we do now, that went in and leveled most of that stuff. And if you drive by there now, it's all being erected. Now, it, there's a massive development going in right there. So, all those fourplexes are gone. But we, um, I got into it just enough to learn the leasing game in the housing market well enough to understand that I needed to scale bigger because the small mom and pop leasing companies, um, even if they themselves were honest, had workers that weren't and we were getting taken. And so I didn't have the bandwidth to manage that stuff anymore. It was too much. It was just at that point where it was too much for me to manage um, and big enough for me to afford a management company, but the management companies we could afford were subpar. And so they were, we were renovating them they were stealing from one unit to the next, charging us full price, taking from one unit to another unit. We went through all kinds of stuff um, with the leasing companies. And so then I realized, I said, okay, if I get over, if I get over a hundred units, I can hire sophisticated national level management companies that have systems in place that I don't have to worry about. Accounting services, um, pay, they could do cash receivables, payables, everything, the whole nine yards. So what I hear you saying is, if you're small, you struggle, you might even die because you're just not big enough. And if you're schmedium, you can't afford the best team. So now you have all these other challenges like theft or bad accounting or bad, just mismanagement. And until you realize I have to scale, 
because at scale, I can afford much better people. It'll free up my time. I can really yes. grow this thing. I love that advice. Oh, bro. And it's, and it's crazy. Like in some people, I, they stay behind a black sheet hiding behind this wall forever in denial. And I recognized it when a, f- a friend of mine, his name is Bob. He's now in his early seventies, but at the time he was in his, he was in his late fifties. And I saw Bob who had all these offices and he always talked about creating wealth. And we went out looking for office buildings together. In fact, I still own some of the office buildings and retail here in Phoenix to this day um, that I'll probably keep forever. You know, they're, they're great assets. Um, they lease, they're not so big that they're distressed, but one thing I, that, that really motivated me was Bob, he came to me one day and he said, Jerome, I got these retail centers. I said, Bob, I'm out of retail. I'm just doing multifamily. And he goes, but I'll give these to you, Jerome, if what I, when I'm into them. And I, he goes, you can't say no to them. And I, he goes, they're $40 a square foot. And I mean, when you think about real estate, you think about $40 a square foot, you can't build the stuff for under hundred bucks a square foot. And so at 40 bucks a square foot is almost just a no brainer because the structure was there and it was, it was everything you needed. So I lined up buying them from him. The reason he sold them to me, this was his, his cash flow. This was his bread and butter. This was Bob's gems. Like this, this type of asset class was what Bob had been doing his entire life. And, um, and I go, Bob, bro, why are you selling him? He goes, well, I go in for brain surgery next week. And he goes, and so he, this guy has a tumor about the size of a tennis ball on the back of his head. And he's going to go in for brain surgery. And he doesn't know if he's going to make it out of that brain surgery, out of brain surgery or not. And um, he goes, I just don't want my wife to have to worry about these ones that are unfinished. I'll let her worry about the rest of them that are rent paying. But Bob was still running around leasing properties, dealing with tenants, dealing with bullshit. And he's a week away from massive open brain surgery to take this tumor out, right? And he's still working. And he has all this stuff he has to worry about. And I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, Bob's 25 years ahead of me. And the dude could die next week. And he's worried about his wife and doesn't have shit set up right. Although he has millions of dollars in assets and cash flow and everything that's painted, this picture that's painted Mm -hmm. in the real estate market, right? And so I'm sitting here in my early 40s at that time thinking, okay, that's my future. Like if I keep doing this shit, that's my future. That's what I have. That's what I have to look forward to is that. And it scared the shit out of me. And I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to put my wife in that position. I don't want my kids to worry about all this bullshit. I want to be in a position where like when I walk, like they can, things are turnkey. Cause I knew the bullshit I was dealing with um, in everything that we're talking about. So I said, I got to scale. It wasn't an option. And I told her, I went home one day and I told my wife, I said, okay, I'm in my mid forties. We got, this is my last run. Like, we're going to do this, right? Like I was, I was sitting back at about 43 years old and I said, okay, this is our last run. Like I'm not 20 anymore. Like we got to make this shit work. I wasn't bargaining for this in my forties to go after something, such a massive shift in my career at this point in time. Cause it would be scary if to be a builder and then you finally get into retail and you're, and you're doing well in retail, yeah. but it's a lot of work. And now you're future casting, seeing what your future could look like. To shift over to multifamily and like get out of that is a power it's a move. Big shift, it's man. A big shift. It's totally it's different. Huge. Yeah, and and the thing is, like, we our net worth was probably a little over twenty million dollars at that time. You know how you, however you evaluate it, probably between twenty and twenty five. You know, you know how real estate works. Mm-hmm. It's all subjective until you actually sell it, right? So we're sitting back, and from the outside looking in on paper, it looks very attractive. But the reality of that is, is what is the cost of managing that and, um, and keeping that 
long-term, you know, and is it, is it sustainable by my wife if I'm not here, right? So you start thinking about all this stuff when you have kids and your family, and your wife and your future and yourself, you know, your health and everything. And so, and I, I looked at Bob's scenario and I'm thinking, damn, I might have all this, but it's all tied up in assets and I really have to manage all this. Like this is a working beast. And so my wife had brought it up. She goes, you know, she goes, I never thought we'd be working this hard in our forties, you know? And I said, yeah, I didn't either but God works in funny ways, right? You know? So I said, we're healthy. We're young. This is the time to do it. I'm going to make a run at it. If I got your support. And she goes, you got my support. And so we have our moments, like all married couples do, where she sat back and reevaluate. She's went through po- points of reevaluation. She's like, oh my God, I wasn't bargaining for this. Yes. But she wasn't quite- It was overwhelming. But oh, then you push yeah. through it. You push through it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, um, like any marriage, there's there's good days, there's bad days. You, the, the good ones, you want to overweigh the bad ones. And um, and at the end of the day, she is 99% supportive. And there's that 1% where you had to manage emotions, right? And she wasn't there on the early days when I struggled. Like I didn't, like people watching this, they're going, well, you're talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars in assets. There was a day that I was eating continental breakfast, sleeping on the floor in my office because I couldn't, I was either pay rent for my apartment or pay rent for my office, one or the other. And it was pay rent for the office, sleep under my desk. I was the first one there every day and I had a little locker from Walmart. And I keep my shit there yep. with a pillow and a blanket and an alarm clock. And it was in an office building, bro, that we shared with other tenants, the bathrooms. So dude, I would go and I literally- love that story. Dude, we would, I would go shower at Gold's Gym at night after I worked out, I didn't even have a membership there. I just had a great personality. So I'd go in there and be like, yo, bro, what's up today? And I shake his hand and I didn't even know I didn't have a membership. I never scanned a card. And I just had a membership there because I couldn't afford the membership. Yo, yo, bro. Hey, what's up? Hey, real quick. Where's the restroom at? I got to yeah. go use a real fab. Be right <laughs> yeah. back. So I get my workout in. So I get my workout in. Shit, and I, shower and shave real quick. Yeah, shit, and shower and shave. You come out in a suit. He's like, well, no, I, that was at night. So I'd go do this at night. And oh, then in the yeah. morning, bro, I sleep in the floor and I'd go to the restroom hoping to God that nobody in these other offices that weren't part of our business would show up there as early. So every morning I was like- See your stuff. Dude, I, yeah. yeah. And so I'm sitting there and I go in there and shower, shave, and not shower, but bathe, sink bathe. Yeah. And then, um, and then go down to a local continental breakfast and hope that no one would ever see me because I'd be- dead embarrassed that I was sitting there shaving. Dude, people don't know. understand the real sacrifice that a lot of people make. They, they Like now, I and I brag about you to my friends. It's, I'm like, Jerome's going to be one of my billionaire buddies. <laughs> I already know it. Like you, you, you put another five years into this, you, you double, triple your, the amount of doors you have. Like there's no doubt at some point on paper, yeah. you're a billionaire, bro. And, 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 it's, it's, and, and they don't realize all of those moments where you're doing things like that. Crazy I, shit. Pe- people don't know. I had- an army cot in my office that I slept on. I did not leave my office for months at a yeah. time. People, no, I never told that story. And my, my, one of my best friends, Mike, reminded me of it the other day. I forgot about it, but I, I didn't even think anything was weird about it. I was just like, dude, I stay up late. I fall asleep on this army cot. I wake up, I keep working. I fall back asleep. I wake up. It didn't matter what time of day it was. I wasn't yeah. looking at a clock or whether it was daylight or nighttime. And he goes, dude, you remember when I came over to your house and you had that army cot for, and you were sleeping in your office? And I'm like, oh, dude, I forgot. I did that for about nine months. Yeah. Dude, I, I, I remember moving to San Antonio, opened up an office there. And I, I, there, was, there, there was a girl I was dating from El Paso that had a cousin that lived there. And she called her cousin and said, hey, can this guy stay with you for a short time till he gets an apartment? 
well, this guy didn't have enough money to get an apartment. That guy was me. And I remember going in there and dude, I couldn't even afford food. And I was trying to get this office opened. Um, <laughs> and I remember going in there and, and I, I, she'd leave to work and there's like food there. And I'm like, going, oh man. And I remember there's a can of peanut butter, a little jar of peanut butter. And I was like, okay, she won't notice if I just take like one dip of peanut butter in. And I, <laughs> just, you I know, just a little, little, like, little something, little, little something. stuff, a little bit of peanut butter in this. And, um, and it's embarrassing you know, I was like, God forbid I get caught eating like a tablespoon of peanut butter, right? Like I'm yeah. stealing a tablespoon of peanut butter. But bro, that was the reality of where I was at in my life, getting this oh, yeah. whole deal started. And so you look at, the, you look back now and you go, damn, all of that. And I mean, I lived like that for like two and a half, three years. Yeah, most people don't have know? it in them. No. This is why entrepreneurship is, it, it, it's a rare breed of people that stay the course long enough to come yeah. out the other end. They say they want it. You look at people, they, they talk a big game. You know, and it, and it's funny to watch somebody negotiate with their dreams. It like is. I'm just so non-negotiable. No, it's non-negotiable. And you're non-negotiable. And all of my successful friends are non-negotiable. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's not. It's, it's. That's the key. It is. That is the key. You because, just, you just cannot. Yeah. It, it is. They say the failure is not an option. When you go into something where there, you, you go in and you have to tackle it as if you have nothing to lose and everything in the world to gain. And there is no option but to figure shit out. Like that's like, and, and that's, that really is the key. It's because even like, even this, the, the personal brand, like even this stuff that we're doing now, like, dude, this was so far off course for me. And I had no idea what I was doing. Being a construction guy. On. Now you're, oh, now you're creating yes. all kinds Now I'm of creating content and I'm yeah. doing all this social media stuff. And I had no idea what I was getting into. When I got into it, I was like, oh shit, you know, like now there's no going back. Now I have to figure this shit out. Right. So it's the same thing. So like when I talk about my wife saying like, there's those moments where she was like, oh my God, I, when I said yes to this, I didn't know we were opening a door of everything that was involved. And I said, sorry, babe. Like, I mean, this is my we're life. We're committed now. Yeah, we're committed. We're and this it. is what I did before I met you. And I know you saw me build businesses, but you never saw them built from like the bottom, bottom of the barrel. Well, and if you so, want some advice, Jerome, I used to do this when I was dead broke, trying to get my business off the ground because I had nothing. I was yeah. negative money in debt. You just go through any drive through Taco Bell, Burger King, McDonald's, and you just say, hey, my name's on the list. They screwed my order up last time. I get, there's a Whopper uh, for Cody, uh, apparently a free Whopper for just make up that, that burnt Whopper that you guys gave me. And uh, sorry, Burger King. Uh, it, and they would go, your name's not on the list. I don't, I'd say, I don't know. I talked to uh, uh, some manager, maybe a female. I don't remember. And every time they give you- the Dude, you're a day late in a dollar shirt. We used to call those Bumby Qs. Come on, Bumby Qs. <laughs> Bumby Qs, man. We used to go and say, hey, they put onions on my burger and I don't oh, need onions. It's a great way to get Where's some your burger? Tacos. We threw it away. And we'd go in and we'd get free stuff. Um, uh, yeah, that's what, how we what, what, what do entrepreneurs got to do to hustle their way into a meal? <laughs> yeah. So, you know- Tables have changed, obviously. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be feeling sorry for me going through this this last run that we've ran through now because um, we we were make worth millions of dollars, and we, in fact, I think it was to my disadvantage having money this time because you try to buy resources that that make you successful and thinking it's a shortcut, and it's not. Create. There's no replacement for creativity, and when you're broke, the one thing that God gives you that you can't replace because you don't have money is creativity. And when you have money, you're building a business. You think that if you just keep throwing money at it, you're, you're solving the, 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 the problem and all you're doing is putting a bandaid on it. You're not, you're not healing the wound. 
And uh, it ain't the money that makes it work. It When it really comes down to it, it's intellectual creativity that you utilize in times of survival that really make that business go. And I think to my advantage in early years, that really is what made the companies work. And um, when you when you have no other no other choice but to make it work and get creative, that's when you really make it. And this second round, we've made it. Obviously, we're doing it, right? But I think it took me longer because I was throwing money at stuff instead of getting creative. And it was really when I humbled myself back down to saying, okay, Jerome, stop throwing money at it. Let's like get into the trenches again. Let's figure this shit out. And let's make this thing work. It's when we really started making yeah. big moves. Well, I mean, complacency kills a lot of progress. And when you don't have to actually put in the work because you have the money and you just are throwing the money at it, yeah. you become a little complacent because you, you do. You move on to other things. You're, oh, that's, I'm hiring this company. They're going to take care of it. And um, I don't expect anybody that I, hire or work with to ever treat it the way I would treat it. It's my business. Yeah. I'm going to be the most creative. I'm going to be the most yep. enthusiastic. I'm going to be the hardest worker in the room. Always. I'm going to set the biggest standard, be the loudest cheerleader. I'm going to believe in it the most. I'm going to work the hardest, whatever it takes, Yep. you know, and I don't expect anybody else to do it the yeah, same indefinitely. way. Definitely. But let's stay on course real quick. Yep. So here we are. It's 2009. Bob's giving you his portfolio for 40 cents on the dollar. Uh, you're, 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 uh, you're in the retail thing, but you're like, dude, I really want to do this multifamily thing. How did your beginning of multifamily start? So it, it hadn't even revolved in 2009. I was just, I was in survival mode for five years. I felt like I wasn't making money for five years. We started, um, so I started buying this stuff as a, as a vehicle means for cash flow because I, I needed a service debt that wasn't paying for itself. I called it trash can money because I was just servicing debt that was going in the trash can because I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was creating any type of wealth. I was just in surviving mode on this retail stuff, right? So I start, I, I became a Subway franchisee to fill void space in my retail centers. I had so much going on at this time. Um, and so you have this, you have this building you own. You're like, I gotta, I gotta nobody's renting from me at the moment. So I need to put something in there. I might as well yeah. go start so, a so I'm looking sandwich. For, yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, I got, I got to fill these. I, if I, and I, what happened was we land up building out a subway for a client. And then we, I go, well, shoot, maybe I can put these in my buildings. And then if I could put these in my buildings, I got rent. And if I got rent and then I was like, okay, well, who's going to own them? Well, I'm going to own them, I guess. And I'll just use the cash flow and I'll use that cash flow for it. But I was like, I don't want to run a subway store. So I have to go big because I don't have time. So I need infrastructure. I need middle management. I need to be able to hire managers, a regional manager, somebody that can run these for me. So one's not going to work. So I need to go like bigger. I need to get like five, seven, eight. So we went from, <laughs> from zero to 13 stores in two years. You're only supposed to buy, build one your first year and two your second year. And I went in and I, I got special approval. I flew all the way to Connecticut to go get this done, pleaded, negotiated, ultimatums to them to tell them I need more stores. So you had cash to pay all these franchises? So I had, all this? if you remember, I was telling you about my subdivisions that I was building my houses. Yeah. I had them cash. So when these houses were selling off, I was taking the cash from the houses and I was using that money and deploying it into other stuff. I wasn't putting it back into housing because there was no need for housing. There was, the market wasn't there. Yeah. So where I had a ton of houses that were, were being built, that I had built cash, I was taking, but it was tied up in these houses. So as I started selling these houses off and I was still making profits from them, they were less profits, but I was still profiting. I was deploying that money back into other stuff. So every house, I could buy like two subway stores with one house. So I just started buying these, these, these subway stores cash 
That's and, amazing. Um, and then, you wake up, you have 13 of them in what, two years? Two years, yeah. Yeah, that's and crazy. So Fred DeLuca, the founder who's, who's now um, since passed, we became good friends. He wanted to know how I was taking these old like 13-year-old stores that had never done more than like 4,000 a week up to like $9,000 a week. And, um, and how, how did you do it? So we, I implemented a system. So when we did Subway, like, and this is where people jack shit up, right? Like, so like I tell people, even like with what we do on our educational stuff, I said, don't reinvent the wheel. Like what we do, it, it works, man. Like we've been doing this shit forever. Don't, don't, if, if, if you, you can go figure this shit out on your own if you want, right? You can go do that. But if you have somebody who has a system, why not just implement it and don't change shit? Just implement it the way it's implemented. So when I got into Subway, the reason I picked Subway, because I looked at Smash Burgers, Haagen-Dazs, I looked at Panera Bread. I looked at every franchise under the sun to figure out which ones I wanted to put in my buildings. The reason I did Subway, because at the time it was growing at such a rapid rate, it was such a simple system. I just figured I could duplicate this. I don't, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I just, I go in and I do what Fred DeLuca put together. So I said, it's not Jerome's way. It's not Cody's way. It's Subway. Like just do shit the way. So I literally flew to Connecticut, spent two weeks out there understanding the business. I kept, my question then was like, okay, what separates like a good store from a bad store? Like, what is it? They kept telling me the bread quality. Like it's the bread. And I was like, the bread. Okay. So it's the bread. But there's something more like, what is it? Well, they had a throughput system, which is their systems and processes of how you get people out the door quick and how the system is supposed to really work. So what I got from it in two weeks was don't reinvent the wheel, just do it the way it's supposed to be done. So I went back and what people don't understand about marketing and, and coupons, discounts, and driving traffic is that marketing should be a one-time thing to a customer. Then once you bring the customer, you don't, you don't keep the customer by continuing to market to them and giving them discounts. You get them by customer service. So marketing is to bring you a customer. Once you retain the customer, what keeps them there is what I used to call to my staff, that Disneyland experience. Like, is Disneyland really, truly the happiest place on earth when you go with your kids? It's usually chaos, right? It's not the happiest place on earth, but they've sold it that way. It's the experience that they give you that keeps you going back to, to Disneyland in spite of the stress, the people, Dude, I love this. everything. So You know who does this really well? Andy Frisella in first form. Really? Yep. Oh, I think he calls it razzle dazzle. Yeah, I think he calls it, I'm pretty sure he calls it razzle dazzle. I've never seen a company besides Witch Witch. Yeah. Witch Witch does a really good job of this too. They have amazing culture and, and they really take care of their customers. And I know the founder of Witch Witch. Um, but First Form, they're yeah. at another fucking level. They dude. are. Another level. Like, yeah, Andy does. If they go deep, like if I order something from them, They'll go onto my social, devour my social, find out everything I'm into, write a handwritten note that's a long note. Like it takes time. Uh, hey, sorry to hear about your mom. Uh, it looks like your kids are really growing up. Like they take real world information and integrate it. At, now I feel heard. I feel like I'm important yeah, bro. to them. They throw in, hey, I threw in because I saw that your son plays baseball. I threw in a, a first form baseball hat you know, for, for your kid. It's just like, whoa. Dude, that stuff is Next in level razzle-dazzle. Yeah. So that's dude, what you were doing. You so were like, we were doing, okay, bro. disconnect. So that was a requirement from our staff is that they needed to learn people's names that were our regular customers. Because when our Subway stores, one of the biggest things with businesses is you walk into them today and there's no customer service. It's a, it's a dead commodity. And they don't give a shit. Like employees don't care. Like if you tell them, 
Well, if you open the door and they're busy and you say, well, they, they, now they just tell you, well, there's a 20 minute wait, take it or leave it. Take a hike if you don't like it, right? That's the attitude of people nowadays. Bro, that attitude will kill a business. It, it's non tolerable in any of our companies. And so when people open that door, the first damn thing you do, I didn't invent it, was welcome to Subway. But if you make eye contact with them, now are you going to leave? You feel like obligated because you've now yeah. you've captured their attention. So now you're you you just gained their attention and you captured their eye contact. And so if you remember the, the little things like how they, the mustard they want on their sandwich, just the stupid little things. For their repeat customers, Bro, just a little extra energy and effort goes a long way. So I would teach my staff. I tell them, look, you're driving home from work. You've had a long day. You have screaming kids you're coming home to. The last thing you want to do is, is make dinner, but you have to stop someplace, somewhere to be able to get dinner for them. There's Domino's pizza, there's McDonald's, there's Subway, there's every other fast food chain under the sun as they're driving home. Which one do they remember is where they're going to stop. Wherever they had the most memorable experience, where they're going to stop. Don't even make it a choice of option for them. Make the experience so good that they it's so memorable. They don't even think of McDonald's. They don't think about Domino's pizza. They just go, mm. I'm going to stop at that subway because you remembered their name. You remember that they want mustard on their sandwich. They you made, made eye, eye contact, contact when they them. spread that yes. mayonnaise all over the bread. That's right. Just awkward, slow yeah. motion eye contact. That's marketing. <laughs> That's marketing. I like it. So d- disconnect marketing from customer retention, customer loyalty. Yep. Really. So, so you were able to double your your gross revenue by our gross revenue we by killed just it. that simple power just move. simple and duplicating Dude. a process and not not reinventing it the exact same process that he originally that Fred DeLuca originally put together his throughput system we did our mall stores like Christmas time bro we'd have 20 people down the line when they got in that line we would look at them and say and we just mouth off to them you look at them in the eye and go we'll be right with you we'll be right with you and they'll be like no problem yeah, and now they're staying in the line. They're staying in line. And then yeah. you just ask them. And you remember, I had a little piece of little cheat sheet because on Christmas, I would go in and work in the stores. It was kind of fun. During Black Friday, I'd be like seven people. I was like, I want to be the first person in the throughput system. And I'd be like, hey, Cody, you're about to be 20 people in line. But I'd be like, Cody, what kind of sandwich are you going to have? Roast beef? Okay, and I'd put RB for roast beef. Yeah, so just so when so they finally got up to the front, there, hey, yeah. man, you're going to grab that roast, roast beef? beef? Yeah, oh, exactly. Dude, nailed it. I dude, love this. So, All right, so, uh, so you- you're putting these in your retail centers. So we're putting- And you're this, surviving. Yeah, you're we're surviving. surviving. We're getting through. And so now we're doing beauty salons at the same time. I became an, uh, an Aveda- You look like a beauty by, salon guy. Oh, you look like, a, like, like you would put one of those blow and primp things in where you just go get your hair done real fast. Yeah, it's, it it looks, bars, it's looking you know. good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know how I roll, bro. Yeah, you got so, it. You got it. So for being 85 years old, you look good. Dude, 85, I'm looking good, man. <laughs> Talking good. My both my 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 vocals are still sounding yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. That's scraggly. So we um so we start putting these beauty salons, we start putting these subway stores in. I create this infrastructure of stuff. The management was miserable and I want out of them, but I but they were a tool, right? I this is I got this tool bag and this tool bag is full of tools. And I sometimes you need a a, a screwdriver, sometimes you need a crescent wrench, sometimes you need a socket set. 
but I got these tools, man. What are those bag. things? I don't, my hands are soft like butter. I don't do hard yeah. labor. You I don't know, know what so, any of those are. So you got, so you got all these tools, man. At different points in time, they all do, they all function for a different purpose, right? I don't know sometimes what those tools are. I don't want you to for. think that there's a lot of lotion on my hands. Like that's not what I was implying there. It was just, they're soft. Bro, I already know the real story, <laughs> man. Don't be bullshitting the car. Don't be, don't be bullshitting this audience. <laughs> so, so I used them as a tool. I use these things as a tool and I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, you know? And sometimes we don't know. And I always figure if, you, if your heart's in the right place, you're doing the right thing, the things you're supposed to be doing, God has a plan. It all kind of unfolds, right? So about five years into all this Are you stressed craziness, out going on this time? Are you managing no, it well? No, by this time we're managing it well. I've always, you know, I always, I, I always think of just one thing at a time. You know, I'm, people always say, how do you do all this, right? Um, what I've learned over the years, like, I got subway stores getting broken into. They're smashing windows in. Um, I got I got stores now that people are holding up at gunpoint. I mean, all the crazy stories that you hear, we're living it, right? Um, three o'clock in the morning, phone calls. And this is how I manage it. Like my wife, we get a phone call. The phone keeps ringing. Phone rings at two o'clock in the morning. There's nothing good, good coming out yeah. of a two o'clock in the morning phone call, right? So I'm thinking, okay, someone could be dead that I really love, but they're still going to be dead at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, right? So do I compromise my health to do to answer this call that I know is no good, right? And so this was like the epitome of it right here was the phone kept ringing and it kept ringing. I go, okay, everybody that I really love is right here with me. Like my kids are in bed. They're right here. My wife is here. I'm right here. So if my in-laws or my parents or someone else passed or something, they're going to still be dead at eight o'clock. I can't fix it at two o'clock in the morning. Like there's a limit to our ability to fix problems, right? And you have to know what those limitations are. And you got to be able to put this into your mind at some point in time. Mm. So my wife comes, she goes, she goes, they just left a message. They broke into our Osuna store and they smashed the windows. And I said, okay. She goes, aren't you going to go down there? I'm like, it's two o'clock in the morning. There's no window companies open. My employees are all asleep. Like, so what am I going to go do? Stand in front of there? Like, I mean, it's still going to be broken into at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. What are they going to steal? Bread? Chips? So you have to like, when you're managing stuff, you got to think, okay. So I told my wife, she goes, you're not going to go down. She goes, you're really just going to go to bed. I'm like, yeah, I need rest. Like I can't handle this situation if I'm tired. So I'm going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay. And she goes, are you serious? And I go, yeah, my wife didn't sleep all night. I slept like a baby because at eight o'clock in the morning, when I show up there or seven o'clock, whatever time it is, I can handle my problems better. With yeah. a clear mind, no, I, I, I with like rest, the way right? Thinking about it, I would have just sent my wife down there to sit in a lawn chair <laughs> out front, protect the chips. <laughs> so Honey, you got to protect bro, the bread. Yeah, right. I'll make the bread. You got to protect yeah, it. Tip, go protect it, yeah. man. So I told my wife that I said, if you want to go down there, you're welcome to. But which one of us, out of the two of us, likes footlongs more? You. That's right. That's get, you. get your butt down there. <laughs> go protect the footlongs. Ah, <laughs> uh, this uh, this is how we roll here at the Clever Investor Show. <laughs> you know, you know, all we do for this kind of fun, interactive learning <laughs> is uh, a five-star review. That's, that's right. It. Yeah. So we, so I, 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 that's why I manage everything. You know, I, I, I figure if, is it an arm's length of me being able to create a solution right now? Or am I, am I creating health problems for myself? And if it's, if it's the contrary and I'm creating health problems for myself and there's not a solution I can fix in that moment in my time, I just let it ride. And, um, and then I, I tackle what I can tackle, Right. And my attention is to everything that's important in that moment that needs to be fixed. That's in my control. Everything else, yeah. I just let it roll, man. All right. So now, now let's get to the apartment side of things. So yep. now from 2009 to 20, you said 14? Yep. 
you're kind of still building. You're doing your concrete business. You got your stuff. We're are building you homes selling, again. Are you selling stuff off? Are you holding everything? Like, what's your mindset? Now we're as an starting to, to think about selling all this garbage off. So it was all heading. So now we get in all this stuff. Now we're out. We're starting to make money again. And now I'm sitting back thinking, okay, what does our future hold? You know, um, I don't want to be Bob. Yeah, Let's, I don't want to be Bob. I got all this shit. How do I like start shaving off problems? And so we start. 2016, um, 2015, 16, that's where all the Jared stuff started happening, where he's getting indicted for all his pedophile stuff. Fred DeLuca passes away in 2016. Sales start dropping. We've had our run. You have to know when, just like Kenny Rogers says, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to run, right? Mm -hmm. So it's time to fold them. We made our money. We had our day. They served their purpose. It was time to go, okay? Transition time. 2015, 16 comes. What's next? Where do you deploy this money? What do you put it into? And what's our next endeavor that's simpler than this, right? I'm just like every investor. I mean, like just like every entrepreneur, I'm always looking for the easier, better way, right? Every, now, all didn't of us do. Subway buy the We Buy Houses group? Yeah, um, he owned the We Buy Ugly Homes. Yeah, I'm, sur did yeah, you ever, I'm surprised you didn't like uh, sidestep into some of that stuff just because it was in your orbit. Oh, we were so immersed in all this other stuff. I couldn't even focus on that stuff, man. Like yeah. I was so clouded with everything I had going on in the retail business. The one thing that kept making me money was those little rentals and, and my houses that I was building. So I focused on building a few houses a year, making, uh, you know, we, we were making about $135,000 on every single family house that we were building. So that paid. So we were doing between eight and 12 a year. So we we're making over a million dollars doing that. Our, our concrete company cash flowed. Um, it only slowed down for about four months during the recession from December, from um, November, December of 2008 till about March of 2009. I thought we were going out of business. The phones didn't even ring. I go to the office, bro. I look, I pick up the phone. I was like, tell the girls, are the phones working? Call CenturyLink. And I, I didn't phone. Oh, shit, there's a dial tone. Mm. They just weren't frigging ringing. So we lived all that. And so, you know, we, uh, so once we, so now we're on the other side of this, right? So we're on the other side of this. We got through it. We know we got through it. Now I'm feeling like I've, I've just wasted five years of my life or better. And I really didn't feel like I'd added to my net worth. I, I had all these problems. I had to shave off now. I got all these assets. What do I do? So now I'm sitting back trying to evaluate things. And so I start looking at multifamily. I didn't know about the multifamily craze. I just started looking at doors. I'm sitting at Ganey Ranch talking to this dude back in 2009 about storage units and how they were looking to sell off their portfolio. This probably was actually probably about 2010, about this time. And they're looking at selling off this portfolio. The market was healing, starting to heal a little bit. And they're looking at selling off this portfolio. And at the time, it seemed like a lot of money. You know, this entire portfolio, $300 million. And to a lot of people looking at it going, Drum, that is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But $300 million wasn't even fathomable to me at that time. And I'm saying, so I'm asking him questions. I'm like, so bro, how do you guys manage these things? So how many do you guys have? Where are they at? Who finances them for you? Who, and I'm asking him all these questions and we're having, we're having drinks. I don't even drink, but I'm having drinks because I want to find this out. So I dream about this stuff for the next few years. Like I'm just thinking about this conversation I had with this guy at, uh, at Ganey Ranch. And I'm going, I can do that on a smaller scale. Like I can do that, but how? I didn't understand the business. So I, so one day I come out back out to Phoenix and I start, I, I set up appointments with every multifamily broker out here from all the CBRE guys, Marcus and Milchap, the whole nine yards. And I'm out here just pounding appointment after appointment, after appointment, after appointment. I'm looking at property after property, after property, after property. And you don't even know what you're doing, but Dude, you're just I putting yourself no in idea what I'm doing. I don't even know how to underwrite these things. I, I owned over $20 million worth of uh, 
of, of, uh, of real estate. Didn't even know what a freaking cap rate was. You know, I didn't know what a cap rate was. I, the way I underwrote stuff was I would underwrite it. If it made sense to me and the dollar, the bottom dollar cash flowed enough where Jerome felt comfortable, I'd freaking buy it. Mm. Bob and I were looking at real estate, talking cap rates. I'm like, fucking cap rates, man. And I'm like, how do you, like, I didn't understand how cap rates were distinguished between values and backwards and back and forth on how, how I didn't understand near what I did now. I need to start educating myself. So when we decided to go into this, I immersed myself in it, just like I did back in 1995 when I got into multi-level marketing and I sat back and I said, and I started just consuming content and I wasn't looking to be motivated. I didn't need motivation help. I didn't need, I didn't need fluffy, cocky, cracker motivation stuff. I needed like raw content. I needed information. And so Grant Cardone um, was one that I started listening to at that time. And I didn't care about any of his other bullshit except for his underwriting stuff. So anything I could find that he was underwriting, I would look at it. I would look at it like Robert Kiyosaki stuff and in his mytholo- the, the, the mythology that went behind like his investments. And I would look at that stuff and I would look at it over and over and over and over and over again and over again and over again. And well, they were underwriting and I was underwriting with them. We're going to have um, Ken McElroy on the show here. He's we we just booked him out. He's going to be coming. He's a up good here. guy. I'm going to have you know, him speak. He, he's a big multi. He's Robert's kind of multi-family dude. Yeah, and uh, I'm excited to to to. I, I I know him, but I don't know him that well. I'm excited to get to know him. Have he's him on doing the show. similar stuff to what we're doing yeah. right now. Um, they've been in the game for about 20 plus years and really bright. Yeah, really but bright. But his content's great. You know, that's why I wanted him on the show. You know, so he I, actually puts out very tactical, technical, very tactical stuff. You know, he's not fluffy. He, mm-hmm. He's just like, here's what's going on in the market. That is. Here's what, here's how I interrupt the seal. So Ken was one of them that later, later on, I didn't know about who he was or anything. So later on, I started looking at some of his stuff. And now he, um, what we're doing, ironically enough, is very similar to what he's doing. He was doing a lot of syndication stuff. Now they're in the ground up. Um, multifamily build and hold like what we're doing. Um, but point being is that people want to just do this. Like, dude, I would wake up every night when my kids would go to bed, I was listening to content every night. Like I'm not talking some nights. It's like freaking every night I'd go to bed with this stuff. I'd wake up on Saturday mornings when the whole house was asleep and I was, and I was brushing my teeth, getting ready for at least an hour or two, every Saturday, Sunday morning before I go to church, whatever it was, I was listening to content. Is that why your teeth are so nice? You brush your teeth for an hour or two? No, no, you straightened them all out for me. <laughs> <laughs> First I didn't know you were teeth in the game, and I got skills. <laughs> um, okay, so so you're devouring content from anywhere you can. Are you going yep. to buy courses and doing online stuff? Like I ain't what? buying courses and stuff. I I thought I was above all that stuff. In all honesty, I thought I passed those days and ages of um, of, of doing courses and masterminds and all that stuff. I, I thought I was past that because I had already made so much money in like people's eyes, in my own eyes. And so, and I, I was telling, I'll tell you, man, I was giving people ultimatums. In fact, I, I had bought an apartment, I had bought two apartment complexes already. Okay. 2016, I sell off this portfolio, buy an 84 unit apartment complex. Don't even know what I'm doing. I just buy it. Okay. I think I'm going to self-manage this thing by myself. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, oh, I got this fire, the property management. You're like, I hate this other thing that I'm managing. So I'm going to go into I'm this other thing that I don't know anything about. And then <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to manage it myself. So I did. Bro, I was like two months in this. I was like, oh my Great God. Great way to learn. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, but I did it, right? And I still own that apartment complex, bought it for just under, just under $8 million and um, just refinanced it for 5.1 and um, about a year ago. And so we, um, 
So I learned the game. I bought two of those. And at the exact same time, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm still shopping for real estate. Now I'm not out of money, but kind of out of money because I thought I had to put all this money. I was doing it all on my own. I wasn't raising capital. These are like mine that I bought with my money. So I'm like, okay, I'm out of money. What did you pay for an 80? Where did you buy this? Where, you know, give us a little. Tolleson, Phoenix area, South. Okay. So here in the Valley. Yeah. Okay. South Phoenix. And what did you pay? Um, seven. So at that time, I paid seven point eight million, which that project, that complex is now worth fifteen point. Well, it was worth fifteen point one at the height of the market during the pandemic, and now it's probably worth closer to about thirteen and a half million with the compression of the market and interest rates rising along with capital okay. rates. So you paid how so much? Seven point eight back in 2016. And how did you finance that? I put uh, two point three million of my own money into buying it. Damn. And then it's got traditional finance. That's a big chunk. Yeah. To 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 write a check. I mean, I know you sold a bunch of assets. Yeah, we did a 1031 exchange. It was the only 1031 exchange I'd ever done in my whole life. Um, and so and for everybody listening, explain real fast what a 1031 exchange is. So a 1031 exchange is where you sell off an asset where you would typically have um capital gains taxes on the asset, which is about 40% or better on capital gains. And so you're gonna take a $2.3 million profit. Uh, well, a $1.3 million, $1.4 million profit. And I land up having to pay about half a million of that to the IRS, if not more. And so to offset that, you just buy something with a larger valuation and you invest all that capital. And so you defer the taxes. If you ever, if I ever sell it, it goes tax deferred. And so I roll that all into it and you can scale up. So basically I scaled up into yeah, a this larger is how the wealthy, asset. And the reason I wanted you to explain this is this is how the wealth is created. Yes. This is how you start. And you know, this is why you got to start young. It's so important for people. I tell people like, look, Warren Buffett's smart guy. He talks about the power of compounding. You know, if you Googled like, what would you rather have a million dollars or a, what is it? A penny that doubles every day for yeah. a certain amount of days. It's like compounding is a really powerful thing. Oh, it is. It's hard with taxes and inflation to build wealth. This is why I like real estate is because um, you're able to uh, buy an asset. You had like these buildings. Yep. They're worth a certain amount. You hold them for a certain amount of time. You sell them. After the dust settles, you have a million and a half in pure profit, right? That you were about to get taxed on. Now you have whatever you originally invested coming back to in cash, but you also have this this appreciation, yep. this, this value that has been added and created. If you get taxed on that, you take that money, you're stepping way backwards because yeah, you're, a lot of your capital is going to the government. It's gone. It's but gone. if you can roll that whole profit forward by a, in a it's called a like kind exchange. So you have to buy something better than the one. You can't go backwards. It's not no. like you can all of a sudden go buy some up. houses. You got to scale up. And when you scale up, now you have more buying power. And you can do it again. And then you hold it for another five, seven years. You increase value. Hopefully the appreciation thing is working in your favor. Now you have maybe $10 million in value or profit that you roll forward. And next, you know, you wake up one day and you have 1,600 doors. You, you know what did it for me on this? There was a guy named Joe, and I'm going to give Joe Dietz a little props on this because um, he he had just separated off from CBRE, opened up his own firm called the Orion Group. He separated from there. Three, him and three buddies did it. And I went from broker to broker to broker to broker. Then I met these guys over in Old Town of Scottsdale, sat in their office. And they go, you know, Jerome, we meet guys like you all the time that we really like. 
And then they disappear and we never see them again. You guys come in with all these stories of how you guys want to invest, but then we never see you guys again. He goes, when I left, he told, he looked me in the eyes and I, dude, I'm a guy of credibility. Like when you, if you challenge me, I'm like, oh man, I, like now I got to perform because that's my mind. Now it's my ego. Well, and you're, so, you were an athlete. Yeah. I was an athlete and competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And so he told me, he goes, he goes, I go, all right, guys, they set me off to go look at, at three properties, one of which I bought one, one of the three I bought and it was an off market deal. And he goes, so we'll see if we see you again. Most people we don't see again. I just want to see you again. He told me like that. And he looked at me, he winked and he goes, I'll see, I'll, I'll know how serious you are if I ever see you again. Mm. And I was like, shit, I need to, I, I, these guys need to see me again. They're going to, they're going to call my bluff. I'm, I'm gonna, they're going to think I'm bullshit, you know? So ego's on the line now. So now I'm sitting back like a little nervous going, oh shit, you know, like I'm not letting anybody, I'm cool, calm, collective. I'm wealthy. I've done well, ma'am. I don't want these guys to call my, call my bluff. I need to make this shit happen. Right. So I go look at the properties. I call them that day. Then I'm like, okay, I'm calm again. I call them again. We start putting like some negotiations. I'm a little nervous. I'm like, I've never spent this much money on one project all at one time, all by myself, all at one in one sitting. And I'm like, but my ego's on the line and I want to really get into this. So I'm a little nervous. Don't tell my wife I'm nervous. She needs to see hundred percent confidence behind me. Right. So I buy it. And um, it was the best decision I ever made because that made it tangible for me. It was palatable, it was tangible. Um, I was a little nervous. It took a little bit of ego. There's a little bit of emotions going through different sectors that, make, that push you, right? You got to listen to that. Now, stuff. when you roll in with two point whatever million, is the bank like, come on in? We, we love you. Let's do a deal. Um, no, there's, you know, so I had to do a little creative um, negotiating. I mean, I did have experience. Um, I kind of flubbed a little bit of my experience. I, let's say I didn't flub it. My experience was real, right? Like I had been in construction. I'd done a lot of homes. I had owned all of my, those, um, those multifamily apartments, but I feathered the resume a little bit. Like I think most people do, even when they go in for a job, I had to feather it up, make it look a little bit more enticing, um, to, um, to fill, you know, my ego's on the line. I'm trying to get, so this basically it's your Tinder profile picture is what you're saying. Exactly. You made that, you, you, you did a little <laughs> photoshopping. Yeah, you're photoshopping you a little just bit. Just a little, a little better. Little taller, it's little more really muscles. Me. It's really me. Yeah. But I did, I did a little Photoshop yeah, on it yes. to make it look a little more enticing. And, um, and, and I didn't know if I was going to get approved. And I thought I was going to get approved. But anytime I go and find, even just to this day, I get nervous. I'm like, okay, do I have too much shit? Is the bank going to think I'm like way in over my head? I think that a lot. Like, you know, we have a lot of debt, a lot of private yeah. debt, a lot of, a lot of real debt from, from traditional institutions. You're always like, oh man, are yeah, they going to underwrite me? But they understand the game. They really yeah, do. Yeah, they do. You know, they so, know. But I mean, like, like this next deal that I'm doing, we're going into to hard underwriting right now. I'm about to go into hard, hard, um, and with all the banking stuff going on, you you go like, okay, like what what what's next? Like what what's next on this journey? What are they going to require of me? Like, am I going to be able to qualify it? Um, and so far, so good, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's some internal negotiations. We we've been real strategic, and um, and yeah, so that deal made it real. And, and you then, still own that? I still own it. Yeah, yep, I haven't sold a, anything off. Yeah, that's amazing. Don't ever sell. No, I'm not going to sell them forever, and until you you realize like my my family doesn't want anything to yeah. do with these. And one thing I want everybody to realize too is that there's there's more than that that makes this work, right? So you guys hear it like that, like going, okay, well, this guy had like two point one, two point three million dollars that he could just throw in there. That wasn't just the case, like let's say that that deal never worked, right? How would I have really got into this? Because that deal isn't what made this work, like what we're doing today. It was multitude of multiple things. So I had a I had to embrace different, I had to humble myself and embrace different levels of um, opportunities from different sectors because I didn't know what was going to work. And I think sometimes people are looking for the, that, 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 um, 
the writing on the wall that's just for right sure. In this front is of a them. for like, sure way. Yeah, this is a for sure way. And I was trying. So I didn't know who this Grant Cardone guy was. A buddy of mine introduced me to this Grant Cardone guy in a swimming pool at a property, a ranch that I owned up in uh, Calhoun, Georgia. We were at this graduation party. We used to do this. Um, for this Christ, um, Christ, Georgia Christian Academy. And we're in a swimming pool. He's like, bro, you got to see this guy. He's relevant, right? So I see, start seeing this Grant Cardone dude. And I wasn't into watching social media. And my buddy Rick kept pinging me with videos that he felt that were relevant to what I was doing and who I was. And mm-hmm. this guy that was relevant. Because that's how we were mentored in early years in multi-level marketing. So he's pinging me with this stuff. So then he's having this 10th Grosscom deal like 2017 in Las Vegas over in... Uh, um, over at the uh, Mandalay Bay. And and he's talking about investing in his projects, right? This is when Grant like just starts like collecting money from people. So I'm like, screw it, I'm going to go to this. But I don't want to sit like, dude, my ego's big, dude. I'm worth money. I'm, I've been doing my business. You know, mm. I've been doing my shit. I'm like, I don't want to be sitting in the back seat. Like, VIP, dude, if I'm going to go in there, man, I'm going to be VIP. I want to be back room. You, you, so what you're saying is you were a small funder of the Grant Jet the grant so lifestyle. I, I gave him a quarter million dollars to invest in one of his properties. Damn. You know, so I'm going, okay. But that was my negotiation. I go, he, these guys are pinging me now because I reached out to him, made the wrong mistake with Grant oh, Cardone's team. You got into the sales so, dude, ecosystem I got, of the Cardone So dude, I got into group. the sales system of, of Grant. You ever, you've been in there, right? Where, where you've stood in his sales. Dude, you and I oh, yeah, together, right. bro. We, we were there yeah, together right. multiple times. So it's we- uh, It's pretty, it's pretty- Impressive. There's a lot of energy going yeah, there's on. There's a lot of energy in there. It's impressive. So many of our listeners reach out and they ask us how they can get involved in my actual real estate deals. Our investment firm specializes in finding deeply discounted properties, acquiring them, renovating, stabilizing both single family and multifamily properties all over the United States. That's why we're so excited to share with you clevercapitalfund.com. Now, if you have some investment capital and you want to deploy it and receive double digit returns back by real estate, then visit our website and see which fund is right for you. We have both equity funds and we have debt funds where you just get paid out every month like clockwork. All you got to do is visit www.clevercapitalfund.com today to learn more. So we, um, so I, I, that was my negotiating factor. That was my ultimatum with them. I was like, bro, I'm going to invest in your guys' deal, but I want backstage passes to the 10X growth comm deal. And they're like, done. Let's yeah. Go. So it was like, done, just come and see us. And um, these guys were just beating me up on the phones. And so, and I needed something from them and I think they could fill it. And they need, they wanted something from me, right? They wanted my money. So I got lined up back to patch. That's where I met Ty Lopez. That's where I met Cole originally. That's where I met, um, I had met. Um, um, and you and Ty had always, went off and you guys did a bunch of deals. Yeah. Together. So, I mean, so I, I was backstage. I, um, yeah, there's a level of confidence you have to bring, you know, to the table. Um, I, the, the benefit to me was I didn't know who any of these guys were at the time. Yeah. Okay. So the benefit to me was I was, I thought I was one of them. I had done well. My ego was big. And I went in there kind of like a dick, you know, but not, yeah. but not, I wasn't a jerk to anybody, but I went in there like I was Billy Badass too, um, which served me and, and it served me well because I was able, I didn't have like, I wasn't starstruck by any of their, their accolades. I didn't feel inferior to any of them. I felt like I was one of them. And I went back there shaking their hands, smoothing with them. And I didn't know who the hell they were. Like, oh, there's this uh, Ed Milet dude. And there's this um, Brad Lee dude. And I didn't know who the hell any of these guys were. So I just talked to all of them. And I hung out. We laughed. We all talked. Um, and so now we all know each other on, I don't know them, but we know each other's face. Yeah. And it served its purpose, right? So so I started going to Ty's house. Um I, they, I, they, they knew that my claim to fame was real estate. Um, when real estate stuff came up, they would just kind of ask me questions. I always made myself available. Um, I started paying 
to be in their masterminds, to be for proximity, um, to be around these guys. Because now I started figuring out who they were, what they were doing in the game, how this could benefit me potentially. I still didn't know if it would. Ty was way off the beaten path from real estate. But I, but he was the one that embraced my talents a little bit more than anybody at that time. Mm-hmm. So I took to that. And that was a means of starting to open my mind towards raising capital, using other people's money, partnerships, um, and scaling. And that took us to where I am today. Yeah. Was going through all that, that if I wouldn't have invested that quarter million dollars, made myself available to be backstage with these guys, was persistent in networking with these, with all of these guys, and then continuing to pursue that humbly enough where, yes, I, I went with ego, but I was humble enough to know that you had to pay to, to play. And I even told my wife, I came back and I said, I will get to the top of this game if I have to pay to play and get there. And so I did. I paid to play. I paid all the $25,000, $30,000 masterminds, was around all these people. Dude, and, and he's not lying. Play. I mean, one of the reasons me and you are so close now, and I look up to you and I, I lean on you for multifamily advice is because you joined our masterminds. You always, you are one of my favorite, and I love these types of friends, but you're one of my favorite types of friends that come and they're like, oh, you have an event? I'll take two VIP tickets. Like you don't even hesitate. You're like a big supporter because that you lead with that kind of energy. Well, guess what? Immediately I want to come and do that for you and support you and come and speak at your events and buy VIP tickets and come backstage and join your stuff and bring you in on projects. Now it's like such a reciprocal thing. People don't understand the power of reciprocity. Oh, and it's huge because sometimes I won't even let, like, I think there was times like where, um, like Nikki, you know, your assistant would, uh, she wouldn't even want me to pay. And I was like, I tell her, I can't man. Like I do this. I know what it costs. And I just know what the support means. And I just never want to feel like a freeloader. You know, I hate that feeling. Like I hate that feeling like I'm there, I'm freeloading because I hate when people do that to me because I recognize it. I'm like, this guy didn't pay, he's here. I'm that guy. It doesn't matter who I'm with. You will see me fight, even if I have to do it secretly to pay the bill. Yeah. If we go to dinner, Sperber is fighting to pay the bill. And it's funny, like, because I get around like Fleischman and, you know, Joel and all our partners, we're all doing it to each other. Yeah. And I'm like, God, I love these people because they, they get it. They get it. They yeah. get it. They, they don't think of money the same way as everybody else. It, they really use it as a tool to go further faster. If you've been in this game long enough, you get it. Because in early years, it was who, how are we going to pawn this bill off on somebody else in early you years? Remember that? Oh, bro. And yeah. I mean, I, I got, I got it pawned off. Like I, I remember one time, dude, this was early years, like 1996, dude. I mean, we're in, in Clearwater, Florida. We had went through this full dinner with a bunch of sales reps. Dude, I didn't have money. And we did oh, the hotel pay. You guys my buddies goes, I go, how much is the hotel stuff? My credit card was on the, the table for, um, um, for not, what, it, um, what do they call it? Um, for incidentals. And, and so he goes, oh, I'll go take care of the bill. Just give me the cash. And he goes inside, never freaking paid the bill. Pockets all the cash. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, a month later, my bill, credit card bill comes in. And I don't remember what the amount was, but it was a lot of money to me at that time. It was probably five, six, seven thousand dollars in hotel costs. And I was like, this motherfucker. I was pissed. You. And I called, I called Pat up and I'm like, bro, you never paid. Dude, I paid the bill. I have the receipts. No, no, nothing's worse than going to a mastermind 
And everybody's like, dude, let's go to the club. Let's go out. Let's get bottle service. Let's get a table. I learned very early on, do yeah. not be the guy that hands the waitress your credit, credit card, card when you first get yeah. there. Because there is no Venmo. There is, everybody's like, oh, just Venmo you some money. No, they won't. Nope. No, never, they won't. They are, gonna, they are going to blow through. So we we rented out Live, the nightclub Live. Yeah. Um, we would just rented the whole thing. Like we were just like, fuck it. Let's go. Let's go ham. And I put my, my Platinum Amex up. The bill was so fucking massive. And I remember at the end of the night, I really wanted to leave, but I had to pay, Get that right? Bill. Yeah. And so the lady's like, hey, to hit your minimums for all these booths and tables and stuff, you're still whatever, like a thousand or 2000 short. And I'm like, okay. And none of us wanted alcohol. And she's like, do you want some hats or apparel or anything? I'm like, I, I don't know, I guess. Like whatever I got to do to just get the hell out of here. I'm exhausted. I want to go. All of a sudden, like, hundreds of hats show up. I get my bill. It's like if the minimum, like, let's say we were going to spend 15,000 and I was only at 14 and I needed to cover another thousand. This chick brought like $4,000 worth of hats. So instead of me hitting the extra 1,000, it was exponential. She she just, you know, had to get that tip extra big. So she just blasted through in a couple extra thousand dollars. Everybody in Live had a freaking Live hat on. I paid for it all. I was so fucking pissed. So never be the guy. To, so I'll yeah, fight bro. for the the food bill. I'll be the first one hiding in the corner. Be like, don't worry, man. I'll Venmo you. Yeah. Don't put your credit yeah. card up for that booth. <laughs> yeah. Don't put that up. Yeah. I did that at the Marquee one time. And these guys from uh, Jersey Shore, when they were big, showed up. And that happened to me that night like yeah. that again. So that's happened to me twice. That's memorable that I'm like, screw that. I'm never doing that shit don't again. Do that. But we go to dinner and um, and it's everybody got to hate that uncomfortable feeling. I'll just pay it. Yeah. You know, let's pay it. But. All right. So now, now you're, 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 let's talk about building from the ground up, right? Yep. We've been talking about a lot of cool entrepreneurial yep. stuff. Walk through how you approach, because we're about to leave here yep. and we're going to go look at some sites, which by the way, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to do that here soon. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, we're going to go look at some sites. So let's say we find 10 acres or six acres or five acres, some amount of acreage that is zoned a certain way. What, what are we, what are we looking for? Yeah. So the zoning designation currently isn't as important as the city's willingness to change that zoning, I guess is the best way to put it. And what I mean by that is the zoning really doesn't matter as long as the city is going to support you in, um, in migrating the and repositioning the entitlements, the zoning um, that you need to do the density of multifamily that we're building. The benefit that we have to us right now is that there is such a massive housing need that the city and most municipalities will support this almost indefinitely, um, as long as the business model makes sense um, for what you're doing. And when I say makes sense is you can't go into like a single family residential dwelling that has a neighborhood that only has single family dwellings, no commercial, nothing. And all of a sudden just erect an apartment complex that's massive right in the middle of it, right? You're going to get, um, you're going to get hashed by the neighborhood and everybody around in, in the city knows that they're, they're going to get hashed. The political parties are going to get hashed because there's a little bit of politics involved with development and people liking that politician because they're supporting ultimately if it, their mm-hmm. team, their, their um, city council that they put together is supporting that. Um, and if you piss off all the neighbors, those are your voters, right? So if so, there's a little bit of hand in hand that goes in this stuff. So as long as you go into an area that makes sense strategically, the neighbor's going to be pissed anyways. No one likes development until it's done. And once it's done, everybody embraces it. But I always say I'm the guy everybody loves to hate at first. You know, it's kind of like Walmart. They go in, Walmart gets proposed. 
They don't want a Walmart in their neighborhood. But guess who's shopping there the second it's done? Freaking everybody in that neighborhood, right? Yep. And they're loving it. So when we go in, zoning is not as important. We want we want an area that just makes sense. Visibility, high density, um, and a lot of traffic count and rents have to make sense, right? So we want an area that are supported by proper rents that, that afford the construction costs that it's going to take to build that property. So we get that information from property management companies and sophisticated multifamily brokers that are advocating in that area. So we're going to, step one, we're going to, we, let's say we find an off-market parcel of land, yep. right? Or even if there's a structure there, like a, a bowling alley or something that you're like, hey man, we could probably tear this down clear this yep. land out and, and, yep. and actually turn it into some good multifamily. Step one is what? Go go talk to the commercial multifamily brokers that are really savvy and say, hey, and because we don't want to tip them off that this, this parcel is the one we're doing, right? Yeah. We want to keep that secret off-market deal kind of under wraps. So we're not going to say, hey, we're thinking about buying this exact piece, but it's more like, hey, we want to do something in this general area. Yeah. Can you tell me what? What yeah. what kind of rents so would support in this area for this type of product? We'll go in and we'll drive the area and find product that's in that area and we'll give them the address to the product that we want comped. So where that land is, there's other apartments that are close by. We just try to, we drive it, we get boots on the ground, we'll drive it and we'll get addresses of those apartment complexes. We typically go drive them as well. And we look at them, especially when I'm new into a market. Now, once, like we're at a different place where if I give the brokers the information today, these brokers don't want to burn their bridges with us because we're closers. Um, they know if they poach that project from me, they just sever themselves long-term from somebody who does millions of dollars worth of revenue. That that's a, affects our commissions. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, when they don't know you, you don't want to give them that information because they want to make commission. They don't know if you're a closer. You give them that, you tip them off to that, that you're right. They may take it and sell it to one of their closers that they already know. So we would go in and give them actual properties that were in that area and say, hey, can you give me some? Um, can you give me some proformas of what these properties are doing, are performing at right now? And that's why I like the property management companies because the property management companies, that's their job, you know. And they don't know what you own or who do, or, do, or don't own. But a lot of times, those property management companies are managing some of those properties. So you go to them and say, "Hey, we're looking at buying some of these value add projects in here and developing some new build, build and hold." And we're going to be interviewing some of you guys. And now that we have relationships, we don't have to do that, right? Like we just call our property management companies. They give it to us for free. Um, but you have to create these relationships. And so we would set up appointments, take them to Starbucks, pay for their coffees. Don't, don't, ladies and gentlemen, don't ever set up an appointment and expect them to pay for their own coffee. Like you pay, pay for their, pay the bill, right? And we take them to lunch, we take them to breakfast, we take them for coffee, we take them, whatever it is. And we would nurture those relationships. And now they give us back in return just free data. Got it. So our question to them is, can you comp this particular address or this looks like a similar property to like what we want to buy or build and you get these pro formas and it's going to tell you what? What market rents in the area will support? Yes. It'll tell you market rents. It tells you demographics. It tells you what the the living wage is in that area. Um, It tells you 
um, what the vacancy rates are, occupancy in-, in, in uh, So it'll say 3%, 5%, yep. 2%, whatever. To tell you what your revolution rate is of, of tenants, like most apartment complex revolve about 5% of their tenants every month. So, you know, you want to see like how many people are moving through there. Does it fit with the, with the national average of 5%? Is they seeing a larger revolution? Why? You know, so we want to see all that information. Um, we want to see what the viability is of the rents, how long they've been at that rate. You know, when last rent pushes were that were massive in those areas, um, can this market sustain this growth? You know, like, is there is there a need in this market? So once we have all that data, now we know if we if this area even supports it. Like I just came from a property before we sat down where it just went just a little far northeastern Phoenix where we're sitting back scratching our head going, still a little rough here. We're still maybe about five to 10 years premature in this area for new construction in the product that we're building, right? So will it work? Maybe, but do we really want to get into that when we have other opportunities in other areas? Maybe not so much. So we'll look at that stuff. And then once we know that the the product can pencil financially because the rent support it, there's a need, a, a, a large enough need and the demographics and economics support that growth and the property management companies feel confident that they can fill it, then we'll start getting serious about underwriting that So this property. is why you like to go to the property management companies and ask them versus First, yeah. just uh, a random real estate broker that you don't even know. Yeah. And that's why it's important to use the professionals. Um, this Now, this is big boy who, stuff. This who do is, you use for property management? We, well, we use multiple companies. So we use multiple companies. There's CalCap, Aztec, you know, um, so we, we, um, Northern Pacific, we have, we have a couple, a few different And these projects. are massive. They'll, they'll come in, they have, they have, they have a systems lot and processes. Resources. They have resources. Yeah. And they're, they serve their, their, uh, they serve your needs in multitudes of ways. Now, why don't you just have one? Different property markets? Management, different markets. Okay. Different markets. Yeah. We keep, usually keep the same property management company in the same markets. Got it. So, um, so now at pencils, you're getting that, that investor tingle. You're like, Ooh, I like this. Um, are you starting to negotiate to purchase right then and there? Well, we we're typically already, if we like it and the product and we get past this, we're, we're already talking, we're conversations are already going on. Right. And what I love most about the commercial market is none of this stuff happens overnight. So you have time. So when you start doing, executing letters of intent, which is a letter that's informally written, um, in a formal format, but informal because it's not it's, legally it's not binding. A contract. Yeah, yeah, it's not a contract. It's just a, it's just hey, it's we're, we're interested. We're in interested. This. You're negotiating terms, but you're not putting blood on it yet, right? No yeah, why money, write no it blood. all the way up and pay attorneys and yeah. do all this stuff when we're not even? Yeah, we don't even have a negotiating yeah. negotiation yet, right? That um that makes sense. So we're already in talk. We may be writing up letters of intent. Um, you know, we're trying to work out terms and parameters and that takes several weeks to go. And then we, we present it to them. Then they come back to us with terms. All this takes a few weeks. So during those few weeks, we're buying time. Time is the most valuable thing that you can buy in life in general, but in negotiating these deals. So the longer you kind of drag your feet through the mud, but they know you're interested and you're serious, you have time to do your due diligence. So I always tell people, don't weigh light on that time execute during that time. Start working on due diligence. Start trying to figure this stuff out. We're already setting up pre-development meetings. We're already doing an outreach to architects um, where it's very important that we do an outreach to architects that have contact information for municipal um, support. 
right? Like they need, they need to know people in the planning and zoning departments. They have to know people in the, uh, in the, in public works. They have to know some of these people directly so that we don't have to deal with the governmental bureaucracy that goes on. So I'm not necessarily going to Google putting in architects for multifamily in Chandler, Arizona. Well, you can. But where are you getting but, these referrals from? So typically the property, the properties that we're looking at, there's properties by them that are being built, right? Because there's development that's going that way. There's architects that had already worked on properties that are already in, in development. So instead of reinventing the wheel, I talk about, don't go arm's length out of your way to go try to find somebody that you may or may not help you. Just do what don't just do what's already working. These people have already got stuff through the permitting process. Go right down the road and get somebody that has already permitted one of these projects and use that architect. What are you looking for their banner on this on this on the chain link fence? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. So they'll see, sometimes it. you see that like yeah. so and so plumbing, Absolutely. so and so concrete, so and yeah. so steel. The architects always do it because that's their price piece, right? Like that that's how they get their business. So, well, yes, on exactly. And then also it's all public information now. You can go in right to the city websites. Anything that's been pulled in permits, you can go in. And if you just zoom in on the permits, because the permits are all on there, you just zoom in to that little stamp and seal that's on that they put onto the architecture. You just get the name, you Google their name, and you call them. You know, it's not hidden information. We're not living in a in a in a country where there's monopolies. It's you know these people are advertising business. We go in, we advertise it. We they advertise their business. We go out, we do an outreach to them. Love it. So, so these are all your pre-development type of meetings. So we're, we're going to reach out to architects. Who else? Yeah. So the, we're going to do an informal meeting. So the reason the architect is so important here, and they'll typically do this for free because they want to retain your business, is you ask them, who do you know down at the city that we can get on the phone with to see if they'll even support this? We want to see what the city's vision is. So then as part of this process, we get the architect to typically do an outreach for us to set up a meeting that's informal. We don't really have anything yet that's tangible. We can present to them what we're proposing, but more so, we, they don't care what we want as developers. What we want to really get from this meeting is what they're looking for and if they would support something like this. Like, does this fit the city's vision for development? It, if, if, if you can't fit in line with what the city is in need of, and their progressive growth is in, in supporting what they're doing, your project's never going to work. You may as well scratch it and move on to the next municipality or a different location. But if you get on the phone with them, you give them the parcel number, you show it to them in an aerial view, and you say, hey, we're multifamily developers. Ultimately, we would like to do multifamily here. But before we do that, we want to see what your vision is. You know, we want to see what type of density you guys are looking for. You know, would you even support this? Is this something that you guys want in this area? Is this something that if we go in, you guys are going to hash us yeah. for? You know, so once we sit on the phone with them and they tell us, and then they're going to give you the whole same municipal spill that we have to go through the process. We have to go through, you know, the XYZ process, which is standard, which we understand. They're going to tell us the exact same thing we've heard a hundred times from a hundred different municipalities. And we understand that. But at the end of the day, will they support us? Will they support this? If we comply with all of that, will they support us? And if the answer is yes, con contingent on us getting neighborhood support, going through the due diligence, doing the whole nine yards, and they say, yes, this is something we would support, then we start to work towards execution. Got it. Is there any other pre-development type meetings that you're going to do after you the city saying yes, and you're still continuing to negotiate? It like, are you spending any money, I guess, is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, how much is this going to cost to get to a, a point where we're like, hey, we got something here. Yeah. This, up to here, it's free, right? This point, it's all free. 
This is all free information still. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and they're learning kind of how you approach a yep. uh, ground up multifamily deal. And that's, that's the point of this. But really, I'm hoping that they find a parcel. They get that excitement. Oh man, I listened to a thing. I, I think there might be a deal here. They follow some of these steps and then they reach out to us because they're going to need us. Yeah, they're going to need they're, us. They're not going to know how to build this thing. They're not going to know how to manage this. They're not going to know how to fund it. They're not going to know how to do all these things. Um, and by the way, you've done a really good three-part series on my YouTube channel at Clever Investor that I that you came into my office on one of your deals. It was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and you, I had you break down over three videos, everything we're talking about in such detail on a whiteboard. People need to watch that. It was a great three-part series. Yeah. Um, I make everybody on our team watch that because it was really well done. Um, but my hope is they bring us deals. Yeah. You know? And they will, because they're going to need to get resumed into the project. I know you were getting at that earlier. In, yeah. in you this need a interview. sponsor. You need a partner for yeah. this, especially the first one. And you can earn a spot on the squad, get some get some wealth building equity potentially, yeah. or even some cash. We don't know how we're going to how yeah. it all play out, but a lot of one way or another, we can't be out there vetting all these deals, looking for all these deals. But if you call up and say, "Hey, man, I've already found the architect. The architect, I found the land. I found the architect. The architect had a plug. We called the city. The city's demanding this. The growth is insane. Yep. We really want this affordable housing kind of concept because ultimately, let's say this parcel we're going to go to, it's ten acres or whatever, and we sell off four of them to retail, and then we keep six. Yep. And we're going to go build, let's say the density says we can go build whatever, 180 units on these six acres. Well, I'm making yep. this up as we go, but okay, boom. That, um, we're going to build garden style apartments. We're not going to build 50 million bells and whistles. There's not going to be yeah, the gonna, most insane clubhouse We're going to build life. whatever the city wants. Whatever okay. the city wants to see us, we're going to build, but we're going to keep it within our building parameters, right? So there's some, there's some stuff that you don't give up. Like, you know, that three-story walk-up cost-effective building model is, is what we do. Like we'll make exceptions. Like one of our projects is exceptional in the rent rate. So we were able to go four stories, increase density, and we did elevator shafts, but we were able to keep all the other amenities to a minimum that like we do on all our other. Don't you have to have elevators for like. Anything um, over three stories. Got it. So if, if, if I'm handicapped, I have to rent a bottom floor. Like you do to- if, if it's a three-story walk-up, you just rent a bottom floor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there, yeah, there are some ADA requirements and stuff, but you'll find all that out. You don't have to know all that stuff. The architects will, that's their job. You know, they're, they're going to tell you. Now there's some stuff that you're going to have to know and, and understand to, to save on costs. But are you doing pools? Are you doing... I'm not doing pools. I'm not doing clubhouses unless we, unless it's off our original business model, which is very rare. I'm going to have to be a very exceptional. The city would have to say, we'll approve this, but we want you to have a fitness center. There's such a need for affordable housing right now that the pushback from the city, I mean, we're getting embraced by the cities and municipalities almost all over the place. There's such a shortage of affordable housing, not low income housing, just affordable product. Like where does the guy from the post office live? Where does the where does the cashier at your grocery store live? Where does the manager at that grocery store live? Where does where does the guy working as a clerk at the local Circle K live? You know, where are the managers that are running these Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's and these places? Where do they live? You know, and there's a bottleneck in affordability. And some of them are going back home to mom and dad. Some of them, you know, they're living in subpar places. So there's a need for this nationwide. Got it. Municipalities are embracing it. All right. So we're, we we have this parcel. 
cities embracing us. We're now at a point where we're negotiating pretty hard. Let's say, and you know, I don't know what what our target is, but maybe five hundred thousand an acre or something like that. I'm, I'm throwing yeah, out yeah. numbers, whatever it is in your local area. Um, and let's say it works out. We work out a deal with the seller. Hopefully, they're going to carry some portion of it. And uh, now it's time to like write this bad boy up. Yep. Are we going to hire one of these commercial real estate agents that are our homies or that have been feeding us all this great information and say, hey, dude, you're on the squad. We're going to write this thing up. Um, yes and no. So if they're, if they're sophisticated enough and they've vetted over the course of time, multifamily brokers or any industry, multifamily, storage, um, office, retail, they're like surgeons. They're like surgeons that specialize. Like you don't go to a cardiac surgeon for brain surgery. You don't go to a pulmonary surgeon for orthodontist work, right? You you go and you stay in line with the professionals in their trade and they're specialized in what they've specialized in. Multifamily brokers are exactly that. So you deal with the ones that are in line with what you're doing, right? And those are the ones you want to utilize, not your buddy, not your your friend. You don't want to one off an, a broker that just moonlights and, and that, that's not the type of deal. This is these are big deals. These are asset um, wealth building deals for institutional buyers, BlackRock, Greystone, all the big, big buyers, right? Um, the stuff that we're doing now. So you want sophisticated brokers that understand the game and you want them going to bat for you because these are the guys that are going to release this place, resell it for you, stabilize it, all the whole nine yards. And so you want to use those guys. Those are the guys you want to write this deal up for you. These are Those are the guys you want in your corner. Those are the guys that you want as your friends and your Rolodex helping you. So you want to use those guys. Got it. So we're going to use a pro and uh, they're, we're, now we're, we're under contract. We haven't, okay. per, we haven't purchased, purchased it yet. yet. Yeah. Game on, baby. What's it's happening? A sprint. It's a sprint right now. You want survey company first. Survey company, you want surveys, topographic and Alta surveys that tell you where utilities are, what the, the lay of the land is, because with that information, you can start onboarding your engineers. But that information now is going to the architect. The architect goes to work with conceptual drawings, okay? Now money starts coming out of pocket. You don't know if you're going to get a refund on this money. Now, this is where this is where you have to big boy up. This is where you man up, and this is big boy stuff right here now. Now, is it a lot of money? Not a lot of money, but you're going to have to spend a few thousand dollars, you know, two, three thousand dollars to get conceptual drawings done. Now, we're going to start moving towards first meetings for city development and the, and the planners. They want to see now something that is conceptual that you, they want to see where your brain's at and does it fit and does it comply with like fire department, fire marshal's office, safety, kids say pedestrian safe um, habitat. Yeah. Maybe traffic flow. Traffic flow. Yeah. DOT, department transportation, um, all that stuff. And so now we go into work. With and you taught me drawings. this, you, you taught me how important it is to like pay attention to some of those things that most people don't pencil into their actual deals yeah. because you build a 200 unit apartment complex. It changes maybe the lanes, the amount of lanes and the turnoff lanes and, yep. and different stuff. I mean, it could cost you a million extra dollars to tear apart a road, move utilities, put a stoplight in, yep. do all this stuff that you were like, oh my God, I didn't even pencil that in in my initial estimates. Yeah. You know, those pretty little bus stops that have all the shaded structures and stuff on yeah. them. Guess who pays for those? The developer. The developer pays for them. That's right. All that stuff you have to take into consideration. Small developments. That's why I tell people when you first start, start small. 
understand the process, right? Um, once you get- What does start small mean Small, you? you know, start with a fourplex, you know? Do I recommend you stay there? Absolutely not. Because it, it's just as much work to build a fourplex as it is to build a hundred unit apartment complex. Truly, in all honesty, it's almost just as much work. Now, there's a little more construction time, but everything else that goes into it is almost the same. So if you learn it there and you get your bases, your feet wet there, now you can scale. And I always tell people, start small, but scale fast because there's safety and scale. And so to your point, the offsite development costs are one factor that we look at aggressively when we, before we actually turn dirt, because we want to make sure that when we go to the bank and we ask them for money, that we have all our expenses ironed out in advance. Because once you actually sign on the dotted line for a certain amount of construction loan money, if you're over by a million dollars, guess who's funding that? You're coming out of pocket. You're coming out of pocket. Yeah. You better have means and way. Because at the end of the day, the bank is trying to do their best to vet the deal that you have taken all considerations of expenses and you have the right contractors that can get you there to the end to the end result at that cost. Because at the end of the day, the bank only cares about one thing. And if that property is stabilized, it's cash flowing because they're more vested than you are. So if they give you 70% of the money and you're coming in with 30% of it, they want to make sure that their 70% is backed. And so all and they the want project's at the end of the day, completed. It completed because an uncompleted project, no tenants, no rent rolls, no money, no value. Yeah. And the bank's not in the business of building no. and finishing apartments. No. So that's where experience comes in. And the bank is going to vet some of that experience. Um, and they're going to, they want to make sure that you can go in. So I got into the value add space first because um, I, I didn't know that that was what I needed to do. I kind of luck, luckily got in and vetted a little bit of my experience in the, in the asset management side of things by buying an asset. So now they knew I was familiar with it because I had owned for a few years, had bought two of them. And um, I was close enough to that 100 unit deal that it was able to pencil me resume wise. Yeah, because you to have that. the 80 unit and, and then, then a and 75 unit that I have. Got it. So I had those two and then, and I was able to vet in plus all the stuff that I had before. I had 64 units of fourplexes. So I, that's definitely going on my resume. Everything's going, it doesn't matter if it's garbage, it's all going on my resume. I'm putting everything on there. And, um, and so now, they give you the approval. Your job now is execution. Okay. So once, once we actually start these, these projects, we're, we're, we're spending a little bit of money. We're getting the architecture. We now, we, we get a, a little bit more aggressive. Once we, we get to first meeting and we, they're starting to give us feedback, like what, are, what things we need to implement. We know that their, their minds are already going towards approval. We haven't got the approval, but their mind, they're giving us feedback towards getting us to approval. We have to now execute. So we're paying architects. Now you have to make a decision. Do you go all the way to get the zoning changed and wait? Or do you take the risk of starting to invest in engineering, which is expensive, to start moving this project forward? Depends how you value your time and what your risk tolerance is. Some people's risk tolerance isn't great enough. They, they just can't see that that approval is coming through. So they want to wait till it's fully approved. Now, if that's the case, that's fine. Our risk tolerance is a little higher. We kind of know because we've been in the business for a while if we're going to get approved or not. Um, we just onboarded a consultant today that deals with neighborhood outreach. That's their full-time business is making sure neighbors are happy. That's it. That's all they do. So we paid a guy to literally make sure that neighbors are happy. 
And it makes our life easier because the city wants to know how much outreach did we do to get support from the people. Yeah, because if they're getting bombarded with complaints, yeah, your approval is going to get harder and harder. It's going to get harder. And what it does, even if we do get approved, they may they may put restrictions on our project that maybe decrease the density, which then decreases the valuation of our project. Yeah, and think about this. Like some of these projects, you're talking about like by the time they're done and completed and you're like refining out of a construction loan into long-term debt or whatever, whatever that strategy is, you're pocketing millions and millions of dollars. You have tens of millions of dollars in potential equity. You're playing a very big game. Yep. It's worth the extra energy and effort oh, to really push it as hard as you can to get the most out of this one asset that you can. So absolutely. You know, absolutely. and I, I don't want to, I don't want to look, I don't want to bore people with construction stuff, but I do think it's important for people like this is with Vina. I went step-by-step on how she approaches multifamily and how, what is a cap rate and what is, how to property, what's the difference between asset management and property management? Like we, we really unpacked a lot of that. And if you haven't listened to that episode, highly recommend you go listen to the Vina Jetty episode. She's awesome. She's amazing. Um, But with you as a builder, I wanted to kind of unpack the building process. Sure. Because it's different. It is. It is different. It's a different way you think of it. This is why I'm excited to go out and walk these projects with you right now and really understand what are you looking for? Are you looking across the dirt at the neighbor? Are you looking at the other projects down the street that are under construction? Are you now I'm starting to understand like, oh, I see how you're approaching these things. So everything has to do with visibility. Um, it, so first, when you first look at it is, okay, is it street side? Like, what's my, what's my marketing going to be like? Like, can I stabilize this? Like, what's going to be my bandwidth to get this thing full, right? Because I'm thinking end, end point, my liability ends when that apartment complex is full. And I Are you pre-leasing these as construction is finishing? So if you have five buildings or four buildings, absolutely, your your guys, your team is already pre-leasing them up. So by the time it's done, you might have 60, 70% of at least. Is Lease, that how it yeah. works? There's a strategic way of um, building these. You just don't go in and build eight buildings all at one time. You go in and you have a plan of like of execution. So you say, okay, this is our leasing office, right? That has to get done first. So you're, you're working on pad sites, like you're working on a leasing office and section over here, but you don't want these guys getting disturbed with construction that's behind them. So you, you create it where this building, then this building, then this building. So you're not interfering with anybody. So when people drive in, this one gets leased and you're building out in, in a sequence so that that way these people don't get disturbed. It's almost like they have independent they might hear some hammers going and stuff, but they're not driving over potholes and dirt roads and construction vehicles and stuff. They can come into the leasing office. It's safe. They get this one leased. Then this one, second, third, fourth, fifth. And so you're starting to lease them in sequence. So there's a very methodical way that we're actually building these to start lease up from the very first building as it goes around. So by the time we do get to the end, the banks want to see that they have some finances coming in on this. And we, our down payment money starts getting released back to us in intervals, 30% completion, 60% completion, 90% completion. And then we get all our, we get a lot of our money back. So there's what's called interest reserve. There's, you know, and there's different banking requirements and we're putting investors money or our own personal money up at stake. And the bank will start releasing that in their own security as we fill. So we want to execute in that fashion to support what the banks are looking for. Cause in, ultimately it's in our best interest as well. What's the size that you're trying to build right now? 150 and more, 180 yeah, and more? Yeah, I mean, we'll take on anything 100 units or more. Okay. I mean, ultimately, I love to see over 200 units, you know? Um, 100 units is like our absolute minimum. But ultimately- now why is that? 
Um, just because it's just as hard to build 100 units as it's 200 units. And if you have an opportunity to double down on your revenue, wouldn't you do so with the same amount of sweat equity? So uh, our whole thing comes down to value of time and money. So you're not stressing like, hey, by building the extra 100 units, it's going to cost us an extra 10 million. You're more looking at the bigger picture like, hey, we'll figure out a way to get the money. Yeah, The asset no, brings in the money. I'm yeah. not too worried about that. It's more like, wow, this way significantly pencils better because now there's 200, 200 units, units versus 120. Yeah. And there's an ex- there's a threshold exception to that. Like we were looking at stuff over in Port Orchard, Washington, where we were in this one area, we were bullish on it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, three other multifamily developers are looking at three different lots. I had talked to the brokers and we were talking about building 185 units. And he said, 185 units, we can fill that. But once we start pushing over 300 units in this area, it, our bandwidth to fill that is kind of wishy-washy, right? So now all of a sudden there's 500 units being proposed. So we're sitting back going, okay, 500 units. This guy's talking about 300 units plus being an issue. Do we build and try to race and fill ours or do we just withdraw? We withdrew because it just didn't make sense. There's so much opportunity out there. Why would I go into Port Orchard, Washington, where there's 500 people, 500 units going up against me where I can just go to another area that's like demographically, like here in Phoenix, Dallas, Texas, Florida. I mean, it's all over the country and there's just a need. So I want to make sure that I have the bandwidth to fill it. That's important. Okay. So if there's not a bandwidth to fill it, then we'll go a little bit smaller. But so that's, that's a, a huge consideration. But when you have the demographics and the ability and the need, then just go bigger because bigger is safer. Got it. Now, wanting to build in Port Orchard, Washington, you're not from there. Are you finding through your property management company referrals of contractors that can actually execute? Because you know construction. You could, but you're not going to be there every single day, boots on the ground building it. So you're hiring a construction expert or a contractor or a team to build these for you, correct? Yeah. yeah. So what we're doing is we interview contractors in different areas and there's contractors specialized. So the same way we, we go in and we find the actual architects, the same we find our, our uh, contractors right now. In fact, I'm going into a, a new market and I can GC these myself. It's my own market. I can go in and I can GC it and I'm sitting back going, okay, I played the GC game. I've worn that hat for, for two and a half decades. I don't want to wear that hat no more. So even my own market, because I've worn that hat, I haven't had to outsource that stuff. So I'm paying a $20,000 consulting fee from another GC because I, I recognize their product. I like their product. The cost effectiveness, how they built their product, I recognize because of what we're doing. So I went in and I want to compare if what I'm doing is really as good as I think I'm doing. So ego set aside. The guy goes, I go, I want you to bid it because potentially I want you to, to build it for me too. And I want to see how you got to that square footage price with such an elaborate project, right? And I go, what would it, are you willing to bid it? He goes, well, he goes, I'm afraid that you're going to land up taking my bid and then you're going to just build it out yourself. So rightfully so, I go, well, how much can I pay you to do it? He goes, 20,000 bucks. I was like, all day long, I'll write you a $20,000 check. One trade, one, if I learn one thing of how to save money on my steps, I make 20,000 bucks, you know? So I go, all day long, write him a check for $20,000. He's going to unfold all of his underwriting for me. All the bids, all the subcontractors, everything, invaluable in my own market. So ego set aside, write a check, dissect his business model because I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Every single day, I'm still learning. 
And if I can pick up one tip that helps me save money or helps me be more effective, efficient, that makes my, my future brighter because of something I learned, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. Yeah, that's smart. So, so you're going to have somebody else do this. Like, I'm gonna have at the end of the yeah. day, you're more of a, let me come in. A developer. Yeah, you're more on the, the development, development side. Yeah, full the, development the, now. And you could do it in any of the states, any of the areas. I mean, you built houses in Puerto Rico to- yep. All over. To New Mexico, to Arizona. I mean, you're all over the yep. place. I love that. Look, what advice would you give somebody listening to this, right? It could be, I mean, it sounds very overwhelming, you know, it does. what, what it you're does. doing. What, yeah. what, give some of these people that are maybe newer some advice on what, what would you tell them to go do? Step-by-step. Right, like I had this question yesterday on my education call with um with some of our mastermind people, and these are sophisticated people that are have already done well financially, but this is outside of their league still, right? Like this is a dentist trying to go in and be a plastic surgeon, right? Like it's it's different. So I told them, they say they feel like a ca- a kid in a candy store. There's so much, but they don't know where to go. Stay focused on what you do good right now, but start migrating and educating yourself. Um. It's, it's okay to be the Jerome investing in Grant Cardone's deal to learn this process. It's okay to sit and look at, at Ken's stuff and poach information from Robert Kiyosaki or from Ken or from any of these guys. It's okay. That's why that information's out there. Humble yourself to learn from those that are doing and start executing stuff that's palatable for you in that moment. One thing that Gary Vee does, I think he's a little extreme in this, but he says, you're young enough to take this in pace. You're young. He always tells that how young you are, right? Like you have time. Execute like you don't have time, but understand that you do have some time to learn. Don't get so ambitious that you back yourself into a corner because you feel like if you don't execute yesterday, you lose. You have time. You'll figure this out. Just bite it off in palatable pieces and execute what you feel you is tangible for you. So if being an LP, a limited partner, is just an investor, so you can learn the deal, be an active LP. If you invest, be active. Like don't just throw your money at them and then go back to work. Become adamant about learning how that project underwrote. Now you're an owner. You have access to it. By SEC laws, syndication laws, you have access to 100% of all the financials of that project. It's built into the law. So execute it. Ask them for it. It's your duty to do it. If you don't, you're doing yourself a disservice. That's how I learned. Don't be afraid to ask and execute and be active in whatever part is palatable to you. Execute that to its fullest. You're going to learn something there. Once you understand that part, move to the next part that's palatable for you. Because now doors open, your mind broadens. As your mind broadens and doors open, more becomes palatable to you. Then go to the next phase. It might take you two, three years but at least you get there. There's a destination you're working towards. You may not know where you're starting, but as each step, as you go through it, you're going to get there. Like Just like me in 2016, I had no idea I'd be sitting here today where I am. You talk about being a billionaire. Yeah, I'm not driven towards being a billionaire, but if it happens because of what I've been able to pallet and execute, awesome, great. But it's not my goal, but my goal is to continue to scale, grow, build. And if, if life takes me in that direction, I'm just biting off day by day what I, what's palatable to me. And in that process, I'm continuing to learn. I'm continuing to evolve. I'm continuing to push to be the better version of whatever I'm doing. And at the end of the day, that's how you get there. Boom. 
boom, baby. Yeah, I love that advice. And look, my hope is that people learn a little something from this. They go watch those YouTube videos yep. at Clever Investor on my YouTube channel. And then uh, and you just search Jerome on, on that and the three of them will pull up. And then they go to sendusthedeals.com and actually submit some dang opportunities to yeah. us because we would love to partner. I'm partnering with you. We're going to go build some. Uh, I'm doing value add with Vina. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then we're, me and Bryant and the Green Elephant Development team, we're building fourplexes from the ground up right now. We're doing nice. exact, everything you're telling us to do. Us single family guys that have been murdering it in the single family space, we made a hard pivot in the, in the middle of 2022. We said, look, we have 23 or 24 projects going right now in the single family space. We're building them from the ground up. We're going to finish those bad boys, get them to the finish line, but we're not buying any more single family we're not developing anymore. We're not buying anymore. Where if we do, they'll they will already be a buyer in place. Yeah, right. Because that's just the way the market is. It's not worth the risk right now. And so we'll build a beautiful product for somebody, but we're not going to go out there and spec build right now. But we are pivoting hard, all multifamily, burning the boats, going going big. Bryant really wants to build a whole massive army of fourplexes. I'm cool with it. You know, like affordable housing. Like, and we have a we have a lady who really murdered it in the fourplex department. That was yeah. her claim to fame. She's a, she's a badass commercial fourplex expert. Yeah. And so she's helping us with those. You're helping us with the ground up. And this is how you learn, man. You just, yeah, you just do it. And look, we're going to raise money for our project. So if you're a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, you're a, an entrepreneur and you're looking to place some capital, you're looking for some tax benefits. You know, one of the, I, I, we invested in one of Vina's um, projects. I think we gave her 250 grand or something like that. Yeah. About 290 something units in Georgia. And uh, we get tax benefits. Yeah. We get, I sure mean, she, the, the, multifamily investors are more sophisticated. They do cost seg studies. They accelerate depreciation. They yep. have massive tax write-offs for owning these this type of investment product. And um, we use investor capital to get into the deals. And at a certain point, we run them really well. We refi the, the investors eventually get their capital back. But then yep. they own an asset where they're getting these returns, maybe even in perpetuity until we sell the yeah. asset, which you just said, I don't want to sell. I don't want to sell. I want to own these things forever. Yep. So if you got some lazy money laying around, you want to put it to work, go to clevercapitalfund.com. And uh, just see what we have at the time, you know, anytime, like if we get this project moving forward, we're going to start a new fund yeah. and it'll be specifically for that product or that project. We're going to hopefully go build a couple hundred units yeah, in some prime hundred, areas. Few units. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go baby. You know, by the, me and, me and Bryant and Garrett, we have some goals where we want to own a couple thousand. We want to be Jerome one day. We want to go, Hey, we got 600, 1600 units, you know, and I think we can do it pretty quickly with guys like you in our corner. So yeah. thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and yeah, always bro. just being an open book and you're, you're a servant at heart. Um, how can people find you? Just Google my name. I, I know that in the show notes, um, my name will be spelt out there. Um, Jerome Maldonado and we're on every platform, every platform. Um, real easy to find and um, reach out to us. We've got a full team of people that we want to hear from you guys. We want to, we want to embrace helping you guys understand, educate you through this to do it right. We know that we, we don't want everybody, anybody going up a, a dark black tunnel, you know, and, um, uh, you know, we're in this for the long game. We've been at it for, I've been an entrepreneur for 30 years. I, I God willing, will be here for another 30 years pounding this out on a professional basis. And uh, um, we want to advocate for you guys. The, the stronger our team is, um, the, the better, 
you know, so reach well, out. You blaze the trail ahead of everybody. You've, you figured it out for the last seven years, uh, especially in the multifamily space. And so I'm excited to, to learn from you and, and more importantly, partner up with you. You teach people how to do ground up construction. That's, that's kind of like your little niche in the education world. So if there, there's a contractor minded type of person out there that wants to make a hard pivot, maybe they're murdering in their concrete yeah. business, making millions. And they're like, this is cool, but I need, I need a bigger path out. Yeah. Everybody uh, does. They can Everybody hire you, you. They can, they can take your education. They can watch your videos. They can learn from you, join your masterminds, things like that. Yep. And I recommend Jerome because he's a great dude. I know him. I know his family. I've, I've been hanging out with you for a long time yep. and I really respect everything you've been doing. So thanks great, bro. Great job. Dude, dude, thanks for sharing. Uh, look, these types of conversations, they're fun to listen to, but none of this matters unless you get out there and take massive action. So if if you got something from this, do a, do me a couple of favors. One, go follow Jerome on social media and just give him some love and support. And uh, uh, if you want to see me have more powerful guests like Jerome on here, the only thing I ask in return is a positive review. You know, this podcast is new. I'm trying to really get a ton of positive reviews. So I appreciate every single person that takes the time to leave a comment or share this with a friend or uh, go to Apple and leave a positive five-star review. I really appreciate it. We, we listen to every, we read every single one and I even take screenshots of them and blast them out in my newsletter. I got over a million people in my email database. So a lot of exposure nice. for those uh, testimonials and uh, just appreciate you guys for hanging out with us here today. That's all we have for you for this show. Until next time, I'm Cody Sperber, the original Clever Investor. We're signing off for now. Take care, comb your hair, we out. Hey, thanks for being a subscriber of the Clever Investor Show. As a thank you gift, we wanted to give you something that we know is gonna help you get started as a creative real estate investor. It's our real estate success kit and it's completely free. Just go to www.reisuccesskit.com to customize your kit, but essentially it's a collection of 15 training tools designed to help you get results quickly as a creative real estate investor. From systems to lead generation to finding cash buyers to creative ways to close deals and get paid. Your free REI success kit is just a few clicks away. Once again, the website's www.reisuccesskit.com.